The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Besides Still Waters. Thank you again for joining me as we talk about the last days or what is commonly known as the end times. And uh, in particular, uh, today's podcast is about the day of Jehovah. This is the common term that is used for the last seven years uh, of Gentile dominion and going right into the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire time frame is typically understood as the day of Jehovah. And uh, our Lord Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 24 and verse 37 uh, likened it to the days of Noah. As he said, as it was in the days of Noah, as the beginning of a description of what our times would be. As you know, this podcast is devoted to helping Christians from all denominations uh, foster a life-changing, genuine walk with God. And that is living with the consciousness that that believer, that devotee, is holding the hand of God through every circumstance, every life event. And that goal doesn't change whether we're dealing with end-time events or we are simply endeavoring to establish communion with the living God himself. If you recall from our last podcast uh, concerning Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus was responding to the disciples' adoration of the temple. And he began his discourse about its destruction and the circumstances prevailing at the end of Gentile dominion. That time frame brings us to the forefront of several extraordinary developments in this time, uh, one of which is societal anarchy, a breakdown and dissolution of, of familiar relationships, demonic worship, natural disasters both on the earth and in outer space, and what will be a unique development, part of which we will uh, address in this podcast, is the immediate disappearance of millions of Christians globally, which many believe will trigger the onset of most of these events that I just mentioned, both uh, from heaven and upon the earth. And lastly, the rise of a final 10-nation confederacy of, uh, of leaders and, and, and countries foretold by the prophet Daniel, this being the precursor to the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the timeline that we are addressing uh, was uh, given to us in Daniel's writings, uh, in particular, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, and you'll find this in the second chapter of Daniel, the first 49 verses, and then again 
the 31st to about the 36th verse, and then the 40th to the 45th verse. Uh, and as you know, Daniel was a Jew living in Jerusalem during the early 600s BC. And during this time, the Chaldean Empire rose to its ascendancy under King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Babylon invaded Judah uh, in the early part of the 600s and uh, destroyed the temple, killed many Israelites, and took some of them captive, of which, of course, Daniel was part of that group. And during his captivity, the king had a puzzling dream, uh, and you find this again in the first 49 verses of Daniel chapter 2, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was alarmed by his dream, and uh, he called for his spiritual advisors, who were in essence magicians or enchanters, uh, to, and he commanded them to do two impossible things. The first is to tell him the dream that he had, and two, to provide the interpretation, both of which they were unable to do, and as a result, he sentenced them to death. Now, this extraordinary request prompted them to respond. Well, no one is, is no one except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh can do this. And in his anger, uh, the king gave an edict to begin killing all of the wise men, which included Daniel and his three friends. So Daniel sought Jehovah's in intervention uh, regarding the dream and its interpretation, which was subsequently given to him. And uh, we find this in the 19th verse. Now, what the king saw in his dream was an image uh, that had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, an abdomen and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet and toes that were mixed partly of iron and clay. Uh, and uh, then uh, at the end of that, a great stone, a supernatural uh, stone, or I should say of a supernatural origin, was cut without hands, and it would strike the image on its feet of iron and clay, causing the entire edifice to be broken in pieces and to be blown away like chaff. And then this stone became a huge mountain that filled the entire earth. And that's where we end at about verse 35. And that was the sum of the king's dream. Now, as concerning the kingdom of the ten toes, which comprised of iron and clay mixed together, uh, this referred to, and again, I'm covering a lot of ground uh, as quickly as possible for the time that is allotted to us, uh, as this is, for the most part, an overview of the prophetic writings. Uh, but uh, this was the kingdom of the Antichrist, as we will see later. And verses 39 and 40 says, But after, after you, that is Nebuchadnezzar, shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron and will break in pieces and crush all all the others. And so Jehovah gave Daniel not only the dream, but the interpretation. And the image represented uh, four great earthly kingdoms that would arise in succession to dominate the world. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, meaning that he and the Babylonian Empire was the first of these three or four great empires. Then he would be followed by the Medes and the Persians, which was sort of like a dual ruling 
uh, uh, relationship, followed by the Grecians, headed by Alexander the Great, and then finally the Roman Empire. Then Daniel stated that the last kingdom, the Roman Empire, would be divided. That's in verse 41, which represented uh, the Roman Empire both east and west. Uh, the Roman Empire was, was predicted to be strong as iron, would conquer all before it. And eventually, this empire uh, is predicted to evolve into 10 concurrent unified kingdoms, which equates to 10 toes. But they will only endure for a short time. And we can see both by the prophetic writings in Daniel and, and the revelation given to John that this would be approximately seven years. And at its end, at the end of the seven-year period, Christ will return to the earth, he being the stone of heavenly origin, to crush this empire and to establish the millennial kingdom of God, which shall never be destroyed." And again, you, you can find references to this in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 14, first three verses, uh, as well as uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. And so in a later chapter of his writings, that is Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes a dream and the vision that describe the character, the character of these four kingdoms, and they were described as beasts. The first was a lion, the second a bear, the third a leopard, the fourth an incredibly dreadful beast that was strong and it had huge iron teeth. And this beast devoured and trampled everything before it. And what was unique about it is that it had ten horns on its head. And we find this in the fourth to about the seventh verse of Daniel chapter 7. And uh, Daniel chapter 7 continues to say that those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. And then if we fast forward, the fourth beast shall be different and shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it in pieces. That is found in uh, Daniel chapter 7, the 17th and the 23rd verse. And so history validates that these prophecies came to pass just as foretold. The Babylonian Empire existed somewhere between 620 and 540 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire, which began roughly at about 540 B.C. Uh, and lasted until about 330 B.C., followed by the Greco-Macedonian Empire led by Alexander the Great, uh, which existed for a short while. And then when he died, his kingdom was split among his four generals, which we find in Daniel chapter 8, the uh, verse 8, and Daniel chapter 11, verse 4. And then lastly, the Roman Empire, which existed somewhere between 31 B.C. to about A.D. 76. And so the two legs uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in his uh, dream of that image represents the Roman Empire's division after about 330, uh, give or take, uh, A.D., the Western 
part of the uh, empire was headquartered in Rome, and the eastern was in, I think, Constantinople. So let's, let's just fast forward a bit. Uh, that was just sort of like a historical backdrop. Uh, now we fast forward to, the, uh, to our current uh, time frame, 2022. And then... Finally, and yet future, Daniel referred to a divided Roman Empire that will consolidate into a kingdom of 10 confederate nations, as Daniel 2 and 41 tells us. And uh, these 10 nations, or 10 toes, are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And that's in Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. And these kingdoms, as I said, only last a short while, seven years. And after that time frame, we are told that the stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes from heaven, crushes the image, that is, destroys this confederate uh, national uh, relationship of these ten nations, and he sets up his millennial kingdom. And so we, as we fast forward in today's time frame, in Europe currently is the European Union. And this, of course, is the political entity that is dominating Europe. Now, let me say, there is no definitive scripture that identifies the EU as having dominance in a future prophetic way similar to how it does, say, the Babylonian or the Medo-Persian or the Greco-Roman empires. Nonetheless, the infrastructure, both economically, socially, and militarily, is clearly established. It is factually established. The EU is a political and military force to be reckoned with. And so now we go to about Daniel chapter 3, and the scripture alludes to the sudden onset of these final events, and in particular, the last seven years. Now, my friends, Jesus likened the times and its conditions to the days of Noah, and his emphasis was on the fact that people were unaware of the coming flood as they would be of his return to judge mankind. This is important. And so this Olivet Discourse was simply a conversation and a teaching moment about a prophetic view of what is to come. And we find this in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And Jesus described the conditions on the earth, lawlessness, anarchy, the gospel of the kingdom being preached globally, Jerusalem's final siege, cataclysmic natural events, and, in conclusion, his glorious appearance from heaven. He was very specific. Now, what made Noah exclusive was that he lived in an evil society that refused to repent and to prepare for the coming doom. At that time, it would be a flood that would wipe out all humankind and uh, all living creatures except for those that would be uh, divinely selected. 
And so we are told about Noah that he was moved with godly fear and built an ark for the saving of his household as God instructed him. You can find that in Hebrews chapter 11. And even the Apostle Paul confirmed that before Christ returns, the world would have experienced perilous times. They would be engaged in pleasure-seeking, materialism, immorality, violence, idleness, and a uh, what I would call a, a whole-scale rejection of monotheistic uh, biblical view of God. And you find that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, first five verses. And so at the time that Noah constructed the ark, the earth was watered by dew which fell from heaven. Rain was unknown and unimaginable. Add to that the ignorance of the prophetic, because here is a man that's building a vessel for the purposes of floating on water, but these people at that time in Noah's age were ignorant of large bodies of water. Why? Because the earth was watered by dew. It was, an, it was a visual absurdity. It was just, you could just imagine people saying, Noah has lost his mind. So too, with our current modern times, the question is, what events precipitate a countdown to the final seven years of Gentile dominion? And Jesus said in Matthew 24, in about verse 37, that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And essentially continuing, people simply continued with their life as it always was. And he said, until the very day in which Noah entered the ark, and they knew not till the flood came and took all away. So essentially, by the time people realized that they are literally in the event, it was too late. Now, some in the church at Thessalonica asked the Apostle Paul concerning their brethren who had died. Uh, the, Bible, the Bible uses the term who had fallen asleep. And how is this, they were asking, associated with the coming of the Lord? And Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, if we believe that Jesus has died and has risen again, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you in the word of the Lord, that we, the living, who remain to the coming of the Lord, are in no way to anticipate or to go before those who have fallen asleep. And here it is, for the Lord himself, with an assembling shout, and with the archangel's voice, and with the trump of God, shall descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, the living who remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so, my dear friends and fellow believers, the scriptures distinguishes this event, this catching away from the glorious appearing uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, where every eye on earth will see him. Again, that's Matthew 24. So we have one event where the Lord Jesus commands and assembles his believing people, both the dead and the living in Christ, to meet him in the air. But the glorious appearing is the 
opening of heaven and the darkening of the, the light of the sun and the moon and the Lord Jesus coming and, as it were, making his, his commanding presence known and seen to all those who are on the earth. Two distinct events. And so this event that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in his first letter is known as the catching away or the rapture of the church. Now, there are many that believe that this event is the precursor that triggers the final seven-year tribulation period. What we do know is that Paul's second letter to the same church gives a warning. And in uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, the second chapter, 6 to about the 8th verse, Paul says, And now you know, that is the church, that which restrains, that he should be revealed in his time. And that is, he's simply telling them, you are aware of what the restraining power is. And he goes on to say, For the mystery of lawlessness already works. Only there is he who restrains. So there is one of the persons of the Godhead who is keeping the events at bay. And then Paul goes on to say, Now until he be gone, that is removed, and then the lawless one shall be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus shall consume with the breath of his mouth and shall annul by the appearing of his coming. And so the identity, and this is the second vital point, the identity of this son of perdition, as he's called, or the man of sin, as he's called, or the lawless one, or the Antichrist, all of which refer to the same person, is an unknown entity whose character and presence is being withheld and prevented by the presence of the Spirit of God himself, while he, the Spirit of God, is on the earth indwelling every believer. This scripture simply makes it clear that while the Spirit of God is indwelling the saints who are on the earth, the Antichrist will never be revealed. As long as the Spirit of God is present, But the revealing of this son of perdition is going to be an immediate event as it will be clear to those who are left on the earth. But my friends, there is a major problem with this because some have said, well, I'll I'll wait until that event. Well, you may want to rethink that. This son of perdition will be able to deceive the whole world because he will be empowered by Satan and will have the ability to perform signs and miracles of deception. The Bible calls these wonders or works of falsehood. And the intent is to deceive those who will ultimately perish. Many will choose to follow this son of perdition, to worship him and to worship Satan in these final seven years. And this choice, this decision, is precisely what relegates these followers to their final doom. Not because God is punitive, but because they have rejected the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, 
his willingness to deliver from, deliver them from the wrath to come, and their wanting or desire to enter into his millennial kingdom. They have rejected this message. And so, my friends, I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to think about because many are so confused about this one fact. And here's the question. Why would God allow natural cataclysms, societal anarchy, suffering, death by natural causes, by the hand of man, hand of nature, and the powers of darkness? Why would he allow this? The answer is simple. And if you remember nothing else from this podcast, do not forget this one point. In the book of Revelation, uh, I believe chapter 6, chapter 7, it speaks of 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will be sent into the entire earth, throughout the earth, to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. And we are told in the ninth to the twelfth verse that after these things, and lo, a great crowd, which none can number, out of every nation, tribe, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the land, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they, this this large group of believers cry with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and to the lamb and all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell before the throne upon their faces and worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength to our God to the ages of ages. Amen. This multitude was delivered from the wrath of God by the preaching of this 144,000 Jewish sealed believers. And my friend, here is the gem, the the thought, the, 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 the heart's desire that pulses within the Godhead. God was on a mission to deliver as many human beings as he possibly could from the coming wrath, which at this point in the narrative is about three and a half years ahead. And so we can say beyond the shadow of a doubt that God allowed a great time of suffering and trial for the purpose of softening men's hearts so that upon hearing the good news that they can be delivered from the wrath to come, they can have entrance into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, be delivered from what is to follow, that is the wrath of God, that they would be made ready to seize this opportunity once and for all, But the sad truth, alas, is that they would be compelled to choose between two things. Now, when you think of this seven years, all of this suffering boils down to a key decision. And the, the, the crossroads decision is this. If a person takes the mark of the Antichrist, he is allowed to buy, sell, and sustain his earthly life. 
but he consigns his soul to an eternity without God as one who has chosen to worship Satan and the son of perdition. But if he chooses Christ and the forgiveness of sins at the cost or forfeiture of his own life, he will die as a martyr for refusing to worship the son of perdition. This, my friends, this one decision is the essence of all that has to be decided within this seven-year time of trouble. Everything, every event, all the cataclysms, all the, the, the strange creatures, the suffering, the loss, the bloodshed, all of it boils down to the one decision. Take the mark, sustain your life on earth, doomed for eternity. Refuse the mark, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, save for eternity, forfeit your life. Now, you would ask yourself, well, how is this possible? And, and, and how can someone influence people to make this decision? I want you to consider a few things. Currently, in our culture, Western culture and Eastern culture, Many cannot envision having to make such a decision. But please keep in mind, in our 21st century culture, there is a massive dependence upon government for sustenance, for mitigating economic hardship, to provide and fund financial relief, to offset the ravages of natural disasters, and to pass laws for the public welfare. Add to that, all financial transactions are done electronically. And the majority of Earth right now are identified by some sort of numerical sequence of numbers, whether you call it a social security number or some other numeric sequence, so that they could receive income and, and have their, their, their personal specifics tracked and, and, and logged somewhere in a database. And even if one were to be out of a job, that would create specific economic hardships and they can petition the government for financial relief. So there's an overarching dependence upon government to be the end all, to be the God of this life, if you will. And the Antichrist will take full advantage of this governmental financial infrastructure globally to use or to take advantage of the dependency that people have that they now look to government to, in a sense, take care of them. And this need, this primal need to survive, to preserve one's self, is the very thing that the Antichrist leverages, compelling so many people to eternal uh, destruction because they want to preserve their life. And so, many have focused on this mark, and they question what it will be, and they attempt to find correlations in our modern culture. But the key fact to remember is simply this. The mark is a tool, a hook, a trap, a mechanism designed to put pressure on the most basic human instinct, and that is the need to survive. My friends, we fear death in 
any of its forms. And that primal instinct to preserve ourselves is the very desire that the Antichrist will take advantage of. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, around the 16th and 17th verse, it says, And he causes the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the bond slave, that they should give them a mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead, that no one should be able to buy or sell, save he that had the mark, the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And so this mark is simply used as a hook, a tool, to confirm your allegiance to the Antichrist, his name, ultimately to Satan, with one objective at the forefront, that you, that person who takes that mark, will doom their soul for all eternity, if they take it. But Revelation 15, in the second verse, as well as 19, and the 20th verse, speaks of the other group. <laughs> and it says that there were others who, when faced with this decision, literally laid down their lives because they esteemed the riches of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ far greater than the, 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 uh, the uh, momentary morsel, if you will, that they would eat to sustain their lives, which from this point is only three and a half years. So they're literally sacrificing three and a half years as opposed to eternity, and those who took the mark just wants to survive the next three and a half years, but they're consigned to a Christless eternity. That is the essence of the decision. That is what, there is a, 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 a spiritual battle for the souls of men. And so the scriptures could say of these that chose eternal life, that they gained the victory over the beast and over its image and over the number of its name. And they were standing upon a sea of glass. They gained the victory. This was it. This, this was like a track and field event, like, a, like the high jump or the javelin throw. You get one opportunity to gain the victory. So let's fast forward to the very end at this seven-year period. And we, we, we can talk about the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So... At the end of this time of trouble, which is also known as the Day of Jehovah, which encompasses a myriad of events, including the seven-year and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, as well as the Millennial Kingdom. And so this event has as its predecessor, this, this glorious appearing has as its predecessor the besieging of Jerusalem by the armies of the Antichrist, as well as the armies from the East and so forth, just a multi-million man army is coming and laying siege to Jerusalem. And, and I want to say this as our third key objective, our third key important point. Satan's objective is to either stall or prevent the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, ultimately his own destruction, that is the destruction of, of Satan himself. And to achieve this, he only has to do one of the following. <laughs> Destroy the saints and the nation of Israel. Both, to be frank. Because the promises of God for the restoration of heaven and earth, a new heaven and a new earth, as well as an earthly kingdom, is tied to both 
these groups, the saints and the nation of Israel. And so in the Old Testament, Zephaniah, the first chapter, 14th verse, says that the great day of Jehovah is near. It's near, and it hastes greatly. The voice of the day of Jehovah, the mighty man of, uh, will cry literally that this day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of ruin and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and gross darkness. The language is so graphic. And uh, as well, in the second uh, chapter of Zephaniah, uh, the writer calls it the day of Jehovah's anger. Now, people think of the, 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 the view of the meek and mild Jesus when he was here on earth doing his first uh, his earthly ministry, that he was gentle and, and submissive to the Father's will. And he could say that he sought to do the Father's will and that nothing would interfere or upset or hinder that perfect will from being accomplished, even if it meant his death. And we find that in the uh, second chapter of Paul's letter to the uh, Philippian church. However, having conquered hell, death, the grave by his resurrection... He now returns gloriously to establish on the earth a righteous, a holy kingdom that brings glory to God. And in doing so, he comes in judgment to subdue all that is evil and all that is offensive to a holy God and his Father. So you ask yourself, well, is there an event that, that, that triggers that, that appearing? Well, I want you to consider for a moment, if you were to go back to the book of Judges, there's a key characteristic, a pattern that is woven throughout this book, and it is this. When Jehovah's hand was heavy against the nation of Israel because they apostatized into idolatry and Baal worship, and their enemies uh, oppressed them, they cried out to Jehovah, and he frequently raised up a judge to deliver them out of the hands of those that spoiled them. And we find this in Judges 2, 15 to 18. But this Old Testament pattern will be the same future pattern. And the Lord Jesus says in Luke 21 that when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that its desolation has drawn near. So Jerusalem has been taken. It's about to be destroyed. We are told that, that uh, two-thirds of the, of the Jewish nation will have perished by this point, and the armies of the world, comprising of millions of soldiers, both from the east, from Europe, and from Africa, come in full array to wipe out Israel. And we find this in Zechariah chapter 13, uh, verses 8 and 9. And in that day, at that point, at that critical moment when the end is near for this beloved nation, that the nation of Israel will cry out to Jehovah to save them as they did in the book of Judges because the end appeared imminent. And we are told this in Zechariah Chapter 13, verse 9, and they shall call upon my name. And Jehovah says, I will answer them. And I will say, it is my people 
and they shall say, Jehovah is my God. And it is at this point that the Lord Jesus marshals his armies comprising of the angels of heaven and the saints of God. We find this in Matthew 25, 31, Jude verses 14 and 15, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And the writer says, uh, this is John writing, and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses clad in white, pure, fine linen. And so the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, he, <laughs> his second coming will be a glorious coming similar to seeing lightning in the heavens as it flashes from east to west. Every eye is going to see him as heaven breaks open and the light of the sun and the moon will be darkened at that instant. And the only light in heaven will be the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ as the heavens are torn asunder and he breaks through for his, uh, his entrance to, to come and fight the enemies of God, the enemies who have marshaled their forces against Israel. He comes with the saints and angels. It is going to be a marvelous appearing, but he only does so because the people, when they realize their end is imminent, they cry out to Jehovah as they did in the book of Judges, and he hears their cry. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30, and chapter 26, verses 62 to 64, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the land lament and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Oh, my friends, this is a marvelous future that awaits the people of God. Marvelous. And, and, and in our next podcast, we will, we will talk a little bit about his actual uh, uh, coming to the earth and stepping foot on the earth and what happens after that as our final podcast in this uh, subject. But I just want to say this to you, for all those of you who endeavor to walk with God. My point of sharing all of this with you is that you should let your confidence, your faith, your trust rest securely in a God who gives you future events with such clarity and accuracy. And if he says that these things will come to pass by his hand, then it will come to pass. And so, my friends, he can be trusted with the good of your eternal soul in his presence for eternity. Oh, my friend, I want to encourage you. I want to appeal to you to continue to commit yourself to meeting with God in that place of quiet. Let this be the primary objective of your life. Let God take full control of the events, and he promises that he is in control of every detail, not only in heaven, but on earth. And so, my friend, God is sovereign, but he calls us to fellowship with himself. And I, I urge you, take time to meet with God, to draw away, to set aside 
time alone with the living God and there with his word commune with him. Quiet your hearts and make yourself familiar with this God who has set his love on you. Oh, my dear friends, let us take time, as I always appeal to you, to meet with God beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.